We're going to be back in the book of Mark again this morning, Mark chapter 6. As I mentioned in my prayer just now, this week I received a phone call from an individual in response to our door hanger campaign that we passed out, all these door hangers, just eight days ago. After I answered the phone, the person said this, and I quote, Hello, I would just like to say that the Lord doesn't want you soliciting Christianity. And then she hung up before I had an opportunity to offer any kind of response or reply and to engage in a conversation with this individual. The thought crossed my mind that perhaps I should call them back, but I've done that in the past and it has not gone well, so I decided against that, that route. Because the truth is, this is not the first time I have gotten responses like that, and I have fielded phone calls to that effect. In previous times where we've distributed uh, door hangers, I have received phone calls where I've been cussed out over the phone. People have said some very strong things. I've been threatened with legal action. Of course, there's no legal basis for that sort of thing uh, in accordance with the things that we were doing. But this is just the kind of responses that, that occur from time to time when we go out into our community and seek to spread the good news of the gospel of Christ to those who are in rebellion to the Lord. Last week, we learned from the passage about Jesus sending out disciples to preach repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, and Jesus instructed them about the potential for rejection. And so, we saw this was our text last week, or this is a part of our text last week. He said that if, if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. We made application from that text last week that not everyone will be receptive to the ministry that we have. Not everyone would receive the words of Christ. There would be those who reject the truth that we offer. And so we're essentially told, hey, okay, we shake it off and we move on to those who will be receptive to the ministry. Well, just because we are to expect resistance... Well, that does not mean that our conclusion then should be we just clam up. Well, they're not going to hear anyway, they're not going to listen anyway, so we're just not going to open our mouths at all. Well, as we saw from previous texts, we don't know how God is going to use the Word of God as it is proclaimed. Sometimes God takes that seed and, and He grows it in ways that are just completely inexplicable to us. But we are to go forth with the authority of Christ and speak the truth in love wherever it is that we go. We noted that the world heavily discourages evangelism, as this individual informed me over the phone. The Lord does not want you soliciting Christianity. Well, that's news to me. I was just reading these texts that were telling us that we are to go, right? Go into all the world and make disciples. Well, we can and should expect to hear from those who do not appreciate that ministry and that approach, and we should not be discouraged by that, nor should we try to bend over backwards to try to make these people like us, and we don't need to go out of our way to offend these individuals, but the message of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block, and it is an offense to those who are in rebellion. So we do not need to go out of our way to offend, but we do not need to capitulate to their commands. Well, as we come to our text today, we're going to find Mark do something that 
is a little bit of an odd thing in the text. He's going to break the chronology of the flow of Jesus' ministry here, and he's going to take us a little bit of on, a, on a flashback. He's going to take us back in time to something that has previously happened, and if we were to place the chronology in order, this would have happened sometime in between Mark chapter 1, verse 11, and Mark chapter 1, verse 14, which says, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Well, after John was arrested, it's the, it's the account of the arrest of John the Baptist that Mark is going to flash us back to as we look at our text today. This story seemingly interrupts not only the chronology of what is unfolding within the book of Mark in Mark chapter 6, but also seemingly interrupts the disciples' mission. Jesus had sent the disciples out two by two, commissioned them, to gave them authority to cast out demons, to heal, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, at the end of this, we're going to see in, uh, in Mark Towards the end of this, the paragraph where it gets to the end there, and I think it's in verse 30, we find a resumption of the story with the disciples. They're reporting back to Jesus about everything that they did. Well, here's this story that's inserted into the middle. Jesus commissioning, the disciples coming back and reporting. Well, in between here, we have this account. So, we have to ask the question, what's going on here? Why this seeming interruption into the chronology and into the theme of the disciples going out and proclaiming this ministry in Galilee. Although the, the chronology is a little bit strange to us, thematically it makes perfect sense what Mark is doing within this text. Jesus has been teaching His disciples about what it looks like to follow Him, what it looks like to be His disciples. He's been instructing them, and now and then He's been sending them out to, to continue the kingdom ministry there in the midst of the land, but He does so with a warning, hey, you can expect resistance and rejection as you carry about the ministry. So, what I believe Mark is doing is he tells this story of John the Baptist. He's illustrating one of the potential outcomes of that rejection. If you're going to be faithful, you're going to be sent out, you're commissioned for this task. If you're going to be going out, you can expect to face rejection. And one of the potential outcomes of that is illustrated in the story of John the Baptist. Something I do not remind us often enough as we go through this book of Mark is, is reminding us of Mark's audience. Mark was writing to a persecuted group of believers in Rome facing severe and harsh conditions under the wicked emperor at that time. And so as Mark is writing, it's almost as if he writes here, okay, or I'm teaching you about discipleship, I'm teaching you about what it looks like to follow Christ and what it looks like to be sent out to be commissioned one of those realities is the possibility of rejection, but more than that, opposition and even destruction. It's almost like Paul, uh, uh, Mark is writing here, oh, you want to be a follower of Jesus? Well, here's what you can expect. You need to be prepared for severe hardship, persecution, and even death at the hands of those who hate the truth. 
this. Mark wants his readers to be fully prepared for what awaits. Last week, we talked about living life on mission. Mark wants his audience to embrace the mission. Okay, there's a mission here. Let's embrace the mission, even if that costs us our very lives. So, in today's text, we're going to see this illustrated. What does it look like to stare into the face of rejection? We know that not everyone who rejects will have one of these reactions that we're going to see in our text today, but we do need to be prepared for the possibility that we could face this level of opposition. So let's pick things up in our text, Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. Mark chapter 6, verse 14. King Herod heard of it. This is the disciples going out and doing lots of miracles and such. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, he's Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed it to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him on the, in the prison he, and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When, the, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. A few background details to give us about this text as we think about the historical context. You know, there are several Herods mentioned in Scripture. So sometimes it can be a little bit confusing. It was very confusing to me as even as I was reading through some of the documentation this week. There was, a, this, there was what was called the Herodian dynasty, where there was Herod the Great, and then he had sons and grandsons, and all of them end up being called Herod, and so they got all these Herods going on, even multiple brothers who were called Herods. Well, to make matters worse, Herod the Great, he had ten wives, and they bore children, 
all of whom, or not all of whom, but many of whom ended up with ruling positions of different areas around, some in Galilee, some in Judea, some in different places around, and many of them also bore the name Herod. So we, it, it begins to be confusing. Which Herods are we talking about? Uh, which ones do we have here? Well, the Herod in our text is certainly Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas. And he had a brother called Herod Philip. And in our text, he is referred to as simply Philip. So Herod Antipas, he had a brother called Philip who had a wife named Herodias who had a daughter that from documentation that we have, her name was Salome. Well, there was a divorce at some points, and then Herodias ended up with Herod Antipas, and we aren't told all the details of that. They're not really that important for the, for the facts of this case right here. But this, these are just kind of sketching for us a little bit of, of the picture for us because it's helpful for us to, to know what were some of the dynamics of this family that were going on. Because from the extra-biblical resources that we have that give us information about this royal family, the Herodian family was incredibly complex with multiple intermarital relationships, even incestuous relationships within the Herodian dynasty. As I was reading this week, I came across a chart trying to break down the family tree, and then I found this remarkable sentence. Salome, Herodias' daughter by her first marriage, Philip, was at the same time Herod Antipas's niece, because she was the daughter of his half-brother Philip, his grandniece, since Herodias, his wife, was also his half-brother Aristobulus's daughter, and his stepdaughter, because now he has married Herodias, who has his daughter. So simultaneously, Salome is the niece, the grandniece, and the stepdaughter. Kind of reminds me of that, that old song, you know, the, uh, I'm My Own Grandpa. I don't think that's a song you're familiar with. Just a comical, comical song. But that's almost what it reminds me of here. There's all these, these relationships, and so you see the family tree, and there's all these lines drawn all over the place. It gets very complicated very quickly. So it is to this family that John the Baptist speaks. He speaks to them, and he calls out the immorality that exists, and that gets him in some hot water. At the opening of this passage, we learn that Jesus' ministry was the, was the cause of fear for Herod. Be- because John the Baptist's ministry was a cause for fear in the life of Herod. Jesus' ministry caused fear because John the Baptist's ministry caused fear fear. And so fear is actually going to be the first hostile response that we see in our text today. Those who are in those who are faithful in proclamation of the gospel, some will fear those individuals because of the truth that is being proclaimed. Some will fear for the truth. In verse 14, Herod hears about Jesus and the text says people are responding in different ways and they're saying different things about Jesus. Some say, oh, it's John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why there's miracles. A mere human couldn't do all these miraculous things, but ah, if it's a ghost, if it's a supernatural being who is raised from the dead, that would explain the miraculous occurrences. And so they're trying to rationalize what's going on in the life of Jesus' ministry. Others say it's Elijah. 
the Old Testament prophet Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come in advance of the day of the Lord. And so they're thinking, hey, maybe this is Elijah. Others say, no, it's a prophet like one of old. So think, think of like Isaiah, think of Jeremiah, these, these different prophets that existed in the Old Testament. He's, he's like one of them. He's coming out and he's preaching truths that sometimes are hard to hear, but that's who this man is like. Well, what does Herod think? Verse 16, Herod concludes, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. I can almost picture in my mind's eye that scene when he first hears about the things that Jesus is doing and the color just draining from his face. John the Baptist is back. He's returned. The man that I beheaded has been raised. This is the conclusion of a guilty man who lives in fear because of his sinful actions. And if you skip down to verse 20, we see that Herod feared John. So we see this is what it says in verse 20. Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man. So even though Herodias wanted to kill John, she wanted him dead, Herod was fearful of that action because he knew that John was a righteous man. He was a holy man. He, he represented the Lord. He knew that he spoke truth. And it's, it's, it's almost remarkable here that, that, uh, that the text says that Herod even used to listen to John gladly. He would hear the things that John would have to say. And yet, there was fear. And when he hears of Jesus' ministry, when he hears of the things that are going on, he is fearful because he knows that he did that which is wrong. His old fears are revived that John the Baptist is back to haunt him. Well, what could be the cause of that fear? Why is Herod afraid? There could be different reasons. One, he's guilty and he knows it. He's messed up. He's acted sinfully. Another is that he knows the truth and the truth, and he, does, he doesn't want to own up to that. He doesn't want to repent from it. He doesn't want to have anything to do with it, and so that puts him into a place of fear for the things that are going on in the ministry. Now, Scripture does speak of a godly and a healthy fear of the Lord. In fact, Proverbs says, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but that's not the kind of fear that Herod is experiencing here. This is not the fear of a man who is seeking to come before the Lord in awe and reverence. This is a guilty man who fears the truth. Now, it would have been better for Herod to have that healthy fear of the Lord, but ultimately, pressure from his wife, pressure from his stepdaughter, and then, of course, pressure for keeping up appearances in the face of the nobles that are around him. So, really, it's fear of man that leads Herod to both arrest and then ultimately behead John the Baptist. Fear makes us do strange things, doesn't it? When we're making decisions from fear, we're never in a right frame of mind, and our perspective gets skewed. This is partly why Paul reminds us, as he reminded Timothy, the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of a sound mind. We're to be thinking rightly about things. We're to be judging things rightly, and we're not to be making decisions from a position of fear. 
I can't even just think even in my own life when, when I have been in positions of, of being fearful of something, that my decisions are not wise decisions. Because our perspective is fear. We're fearing something that we ought not to fear often in those situations. And so we make foolish choices. Other times I can remember being fearful specifically because of my own guilt. Right? If I would do something at home growing up and I know that I've done something wrong and then mom comes to me and says, hey, but I need to talk to you for a second. Like, oh no, I got found out. You know, what's she going to say? I'm scared. My heart starts racing, right? And then it turns out she wasn't even going to be talking to me about that. Well, why was I fearful? Because I was guilty. And I knew it. Proverbs says that the wicked run when no one is chasing. Sirens start going off. The, you know, the police car goes down the street with the sirens blaring, and the guilty man ducks and hides. And I got, oh, is that coming for me? If we're not guilty, there's no reason to run. There's no reason for fear. But guilt and fear lead many to foolish decisions. And Herod is a guilty and a fearful man. But in a way, he's not fearful enough because he capitulates to the requests of his wife and his and his stepdaughter. And so it is fear that leads him to these actions. Some will fear because of the truth. And in some ways, what they will do through that fear may be unpredictable. Some will fear, some will oppose the ministry. Some will oppose you because of the truth. In verse 17, we read that Herod had imprisoned John for the sake of his wife because when they married, John the Baptist was boldly declaring to Herod, no, sir, that is wrong. It is not lawful for you to have her. And so verse 19 says, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. So she opposes John. She, she works against John. She's the one who, who told Herod, hey, you need to arrest this guy. Get him off the street. Get him to where he cannot influence people any longer. He's attacking our relationship, and I am not okay with that. And so Herod does that. He puts, her in, puts him in prison. But she hates John. She hates that he would speak to what many would say is just her personal life. And she did not have the power to outright destroy John, even though she wanted to in this moment, because the text says that Herod, again, out of fear, was protecting John. So sometimes that fear, it was almost, it was a grace in John's life at that moment because it protected John the Baptist. But she opposed John and wanted Herod to imprison him and desired his destruction because John was speaking directly to the immorality of their relationship. You know, in some ways, some might say that John was being too political with that message. Oh, that's, that, that, that's a civil servant. That's their private lives. You know, that's, that, that doesn't concern anything else. And yet here he was directly speaking to the private life and the morality of the governing officials. seems that there is a biblical place for calling out and addressing the sins of those who would serve as civil magistrates. When Scripture speaks to things that are going on in the world of politics, 
We don't get to just ignore them because, hey, now that's politics, so we, we don't touch that. No, we need to speak truth. We need to communicate what the Word of God has to say upon a particular issue. Even if that lands us with, with hot, into hot water with others or even with the government itself, we have a responsibility to speak truth and to communicate that. Well, in the midst of this situation, John has spoken courageously and directly to the sins of the civil magistrate and lands him in jail because of it. So we have a situation where John faces opposition because of ministry and because of the truth. We find ourselves in a day and age today where it is becoming increasingly costly to stand for truth and to speak truth to others. People face the prospect of losing their jobs, their positions of influence, in some cases even their families. There is opposition to the truth. And Satan would love nothing more than to see the church just shut up and sit down and just let whatever will be, will be. Just don't address those things. Just, just ignore it. Often opposition comes in the form of intimidation, comes in the form of threats, or comes in the form of, of cheeky phone calls telling me that the Lord does not want us soliciting Christianity. And sometimes things escalate beyond that even, and that opposition can be more significance. For a time, there was a period of protection upon John because of the fear that was present in the life of Herod, but eventually that fear of John would give way to a fear of man and mankind around him. And we see that some will oppose, but some will also seek our destruction. Some oppose, but some do seek our destruction because of the truth. In verse 21, we find that an opportunity arose. Herodias wanted John dead. She didn't have the power to do it, but an opportunity arose and she jumped at it. So Herod hosts a banquet, right? He's, got, he's hosting, he brings all of his nobles in and they are there all together. His stepdaughter performs what was likely an inappropriate dance in that moment. The king, he's pleased with her and he says, oh yeah, whatever you want, I'm going to give you up to half my kingdom. It's yours. Just over-the-top generosity. Of course, it was a foolish pledge, but in our text, Herod has not shown himself to be a, a wise man of restraint and courage. He's a foolish man. He is, he is governing foolishly. So the daughter asks her mom, what should I ask for? And she says, aha, she has her moments. Opportunity strikes. Ask for John the Baptist's head. So she does. She goes back in. She doesn't just ask for his head, she asks it at once, and she wants it on a platter. She doesn't want this to be something that just is done in secret and just can be just kind of hidden away. She says, no, go and do it right now and bring it here in the presence of everyone else. Everyone will see whether or not you follow through or not. And so as we look at verses 26 through 29, we find the response of Herod. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. 
So Herod is sad. He likes John. But he's also a coward. So rather than standing for truth and standing for what is right, he fears his nobles, he fears his wife more than God, and so he caves. He gives in. And John the Baptist is murdered. Because John spoke truth, he was opposed, and ultimately, at least from a humanly perspective, destroyed taken out of the picture, no longer allowed to have influence. Well, here we are in today's age, and we face different levels of opposition and destruction today than what John did, though the days may be coming when there's a closer parallel than we would like. Currently, there are those who hate the truth, there are those who hate the Word of God, they hate anyone who proclaims it, and some of these people may not have direct influence and power, but, but those who do fear those who hate us more than they fear God in many cases. Just this last week, there was a baseball player who played for the Toronto Blue Jays, his name was Anthony Bass. He shared a video on his social media page that from another creator who is arguing that it was biblical and right for Christians to support and participate in boycotting companies like Bud Light and Target for their support of the LGBTQ community and agenda. Now, I have not seen the video in question. I tried to look for it this week as I was considering things in relation to this message. I couldn't find it, so I don't know the, the particulars of what was in that video. But I read news articles that described the video that said that there was an individual just opening up the Bible and saying, hey, you know, we're, we're to expose the unfruitful works of darkness and have nothing to do with these individuals. So on that level, it is appropriate for these boycotts to happen. That was the argument that was being made. Anthony Bass apparently agreed with this. He shared it on his social media. Well, of course, he was faced with harsh criticism and backlash. And he was, eventually, he got to the place where he was placed in front of the media and forced to apologize for his actions. And he caved. He caved in. He apologized. He said, nope, I shouldn't have done that. I should have thought about this. I should have thought about X, Y, and Z. He did say he still held to his convictions, but he should have thought differently about how he's to share things on social media. But even though he apologized for that, of course, that's not enough. He was unceremoniously cut from the team this week. At first, the team tried to just distance themselves from the player without cutting him, just saying, well, you know, the views of the player don't necessarily represent the views of this organization, and so on and so forth. But that wasn't, that wasn't enough, so eventually Herod caved and cut off the head, proverbially speaking. It'll be interesting to see if there's another team that picks up Anthony Bass or not. He, there's a there's a period of time where he's currently what's called designated for assignment, and he will almost certainly be released from the team. And at that point, the future of his career is up in the air. Why do I raise that up? Well, here's a, a case, a public case of opposition, and then public career destruction of a player who had been a quality baseball player at points in his career. Like, this is an individual who would be, still be serviceable to many Major League Baseball teams. There are some who will seek your destruction. There will be some who seek your destruction because of truth. 
Well, as we kind of bring this home and we think about these things, the point to all this isn't for us to develop like a persecution complex that sees everyone who, ex- who expresses contrary ideas to the truth, oh, they're persecuting us. That's not, that's not the point. That's not what we want to set to build ourselves into. As Peter notes, it is better for us to suffer for the sake of righteousness than for the sake of wrongdoing. Right? It, 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 that's better. Like, don't, if you're suffering for the sake of wrong, well, it serves your rights. You, you did something that was wrong. But if it's the will of God for us to suffer for righteousness, he says that's better. The point of this text is that we need to be prepared for what awaits those who are going to be truth speakers in a world that values the lie over and against the truth. We need to be prepared for what awaits us if we're going to be truth speakers in a world that values the lie over and against truth. There will be opposition. There will be attempts at destruction. But that doesn't change our mission. You know, we are a church who believes in pre-tribulational rapture and premillennial eschatology. So, well, what does that have to do with this? I'll explain. There are some who would seek to criticize pre-tribulational and premillennial theology and claim that it's a theology of escape. Ah, you believe that, that, that the church is just going to be raptured up because you're looking for the blessed hope and the return of Christ. Well, you're just going to have this tendency to just kind of to hunker down, to not engage the world because, hey, Jesus could come back at any moment. And so, hey, why bother just engaging with the world? Why bother trying to talk to anybody? Why bother trying to create anything in the world? Because we're going to be gone. Everything's going to burn anyway. So why bother trying to create anything of lasting significance? So they say it's a theology of escape, that we're going to escape, so we just disconnect and we disengage from the world. Others have criticized our theology because they believe it leads to a mentality that says, well, you know, the church won't have to suffer many things because we're going to be raptured. Yeah, sure, there's going to be tribulation on the earth, but it's really not for us, right? That, that great tribulation, that seven-year tribulation period, we're going to be caught up and removed from that. And so the argument is, is that this, this theology leads to a complacency in getting caught off guard by persecution and suffering when it comes. Now, sadly, I do believe that there are, there are individuals who do embrace our theology that make these criticisms legitimate in their cases. There are some who do hold to our theological distinctives that have disengaged from the world because, hey, it's all going to burn anyway, so why bother? And there are some who have almost bought into, it's almost a prosperity mentality that says that, oh, we won't have to endure suffering because we're going to be spared from that in the rapture. Well, I don't believe that those responses are biblical applications of the true doctrines of the rapture of the church and what the Scriptures speak of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church from the earth. The imminency of the rapture of the church should drive us rather to zeal and proclamation, not disengagements. But it should drive us to zeal because we recognize, yeah, that it might be today that Jesus Christ returns. Have you ever seen, sometimes there's those decorative plaques or those wall arts that says, perhaps today. 
Jesus Christ could return today and, and catch us into the air to be with Him. That's a very real reality. Imminency means that Jesus could return at any moment. But imminency also means that any moment could be this moment, or it could be a moment 200 years into the future. And so what we are to do is to seek to live every day as if this is our last day, but also plan as though we are going to be around for a while and seek to build things in such a way that influence future generations for Jesus Christ. The pre-tribulational rapture is not to be something that causes us to disengage, but to engage all the more. And when we do so, we can expect opposition. Furthermore, as far as the tribulation itself goes, we do believe that the church will be spared from the worst of the worst when it comes to the tribulation that is going to be experienced upon the earth. But we must not mistake that to mean that we will not have to endure any suffering or any hardship or any persecution whatsoever. Jesus spoke often of the hardship that believers would endure, and Paul said that all who live a godly life in Jesus will suffer some form of persecution. We can expect that persecution will come. And if you ever picked up Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read the history of absolute severe genocide upon believers in the church history. We must anticipate that there will be suffering and there will be persecution, that there will be tribulation upon us, even if it is not the great tribulation that is referred to in the book of Revelation. So my encouragement for us is to not let our theology get, get twisted into bad applications of sound doctrine, but to make good biblical application of sound doctrine and recognize that we have been commissioned for a task and there will be some who respond in faith to that message and praise God for those who do. Praise God who hear the message of the good news of the gospel of Christ, that anyone who repents of their sin and places their faith in Christ alone for salvation will receive eternal life. But there will be some who reject. There will be some who fear because of the truth. There will be some who oppose. And there will be some who seek our destruction because of the truth. We are seeing this in action in our day and age, so we need to be prepared, and we to not, to need to not let it discourage us. Don't let it discourage you. But rather, may it be a, be a cause of rejoicing so that we can say with the apostles, and I'm going to close with this text, Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for His name, and that, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. If the Lord would bring such persecution into our lives, may our lives reflect this boldness standing for truth, seeking to love those around us, even if it means our own humanly destruction.
Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this text. In many ways, it's a hard text to see what happens to many who seek to be faithful followers of you, faithful mouthpieces for you, declaring the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that we can be faithful even in the midst of the potential of suffering and persecution. John suffered because of his commitment to truth, and yet he was willing to endure for the sake of truth. Lord, I pray that that would be our testimony as well. Lord, I pray that our testimony would would be one of a gracious but bold, truthful and loving proclamation of your word to others. others who are in rebellion against you, those who are seeking their own ways over the ways of you, others who desperately need the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank you for this text. I thank you for your word. We pray this in Christ's name.